Two weeks ago, we wrapped up the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus prayed for himself, Jesus prayed for his 11 disciples, and Jesus prayed for all believers, current believers at that time, and all future believers. This morning, we're going to take a look at the arrest narrative or the arrest of Jesus in John chapter 18. We're, we're moving now. We're going to be moving and fairly quickly because this is historical narrative and uh, it just tends to move a little faster. But in any case, I'd like to introduce you to some concepts and ideas about this particular text and this passage. Of all the preposterous views of our Lord which exist today, um, the view concerning, and there's many views concerning this, but there's one in particular that's just way at the top of the list. It's the view concerning his arrest and death. It's just utterly preposterous, just crazy, and it makes you wonder, after I get done describing it to you, you're going to be wondering, how do people arrive at these conclusions? Obviously, they're not reading the Gospels, or they are, and they don't have faith, they don't believe. But some folks actually believe and teach, and some of these people that believe and teach this stuff are actual professors at colleges that oversee the theology departments. They believe and teach that Jesus did not intend to get himself arrested and executed. Uh, they, they basically refer to him or call him an unwitting, unwilling victim who made some logistical mistakes that led to an unnecessary tragedy. And it comes as no surprise that these are the same folks who advocate that Jesus was merely a Jewish philosopher or a good teacher or a highly moral and ethical man. And within their ranks, these same folks that believe and teach this stuff, within their ranks, some have even suggested, and this might be the, the pinnacle of just how preposterous this is, but some have actually suggested that the Jewish authorities were trying to save Jesus from the Roman authorities. <laughs> now these pseudo-scholars obviously skipped over all of the scriptures that clearly show how the religious authorities actually felt about Jesus. All of the attempts to arrest him, all of the attempts to kill him, and so on. Take, for instance, Matthew 26, verses 65 and 66, where we see the highest-ranking Jewish authority, the high priest, Caiaphas, tear his robe and cry out for Jesus' execution. Well, that sounds like a high-ranking Jewish authority trying to save Jesus. Now, now these pseudo-professors, pseudo-theologians, pseudo-scholars would put a spin on this as well. They would probably say that the reason why the high priest actually tore his robe was to give it to Jesus because Jesus was cold and he needed something warm to wear. It's silly, right? It's what they actually say. It's what they actually teach unassuming, young, quote-unquote, Christians as they're trying to enter into the mission field or what have you. And John 18 is another passage that paints an entirely different picture from what these pseudo-scholars are painting. It does not present our Lord as an unwitting, unwilling victim. On the contrary, it presents Him as Messiah on a mission does not show him making logistical mistakes that led to his demise. 
Instead, we see the Son of Man, the Son of God, executing his Father's plan with exact precision and humble submission. Now, John's account of what transpired on this faithful night is is radically different from the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptics seem to put the focus on the humanity of Christ as he entered into these final moments. For example, in Matthew 26, in Mark chapter 14, and in Luke 22, which is where the account of his arrest is located in the synoptics, in those accounts we see Jesus in deep anguish. We see Jesus praying to the Father and and even sweating drops of blood, praying that the Father might, if it be his will, remove this cup from him. But John doesn't mention any of these things in his account. Instead, he puts the focus not necessarily on the humanity of Christ, but on the deity of Christ by highlighting clear examples of his divine divine omniscience, his sovereign power, his sovereign control over the entire situation, thus contradicting the views I just mentioned. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. We will see for ourselves how the Word of God presents Christ on this evening which is vastly different from what those at a college in South Carolina or wherever are presenting. Let's pray before we pick up where we left off two Sundays ago. Father, we humble ourselves now and we put ourselves at your feet. You are the great teacher. We ask that you send the Holy Spirit to come in power, that he might open our minds, our ears, our minds, our hearts to the very word of God, to the truth to the message that can save. We pray that you would clarify some things for us today if we're a bit confused about how this went down. Help us to see the totality of who Christ is, that he's not just the Son of Man, but that he's also the Son of God. And as the Son of God, in total and absolute sovereign control over this entire situation, disproving of these crazy apostate views that are out there, Help us to see Christ for who he is and help us to submit to him and to worship him and to do his will. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll pick it up at verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1. Here's how the narrative continues. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So after Jesus finished his high priestly prayer, he and his disciples resumed their walk to Gethsemane, the garden. The text literally says they went out. The idea here is that they went out of the city. They went out of Jerusalem, not out of the upper room. They went out of the upper room earlier that evening. You see that at the end of chapter 14 and verse 31. Now this means that everything Jesus said and prayed for in chapters 15, 16, and 17 was done within the city walls. 
as they were walking the streets of Jerusalem, and I believe for the high priestly prayer, they stopped somewhere. But all of that happened within the city walls. And after they went out of Jerusalem, they crossed what's called the Brook Kidron. The Brook Kidron was a, a wadi. That's an Arabic term. A wadi is a, is a dry riverbed that contains water only when heavy rains occur, pretty much like all of Northern California. Northern California is one giant wadi. Now, the Brook Kidron was located just a few hundred feet below the Temple Mount. So it wouldn't have taken Jesus and his disciples long to get to it after they crossed out of the main entrance or the side entrance, wherever they came out of it. It would only take a few moments to get there. The Brook Kidron is also called the Kidron Valley in Scripture. How many of you are familiar with the Kidron Valley? Yeah, it's the same place. It first appears in 2 Samuel 15.23, where we see King David flee to the Kidron Valley after being deposed by his own son, Absalom. His son rose up, some men got behind him and supported him, and he basically dethroned David for a period of time, and David, fleeing for his life, went down into the Kidron Valley, hid out down there. The Kidron Valley also appears in 2 Kings 23, 4-12, and in 2 Chronicles 29, 16, and in chapter 30, verse 14. In those passages, we see two great reformers, King Josiah and King Hezekiah, taking idols, the Israelites' idols, down into the Kidron Valley and burning them, destroying the idols, the false gods. The Brook Kidron, or the Kidron Valley was known in that day as a place of betrayal and treachery. That's what it was known as. And incredibly, the greatest act of betrayal and treachery in human history was about to occur in that very same place. And this was not happenstance. It wasn't... Just that, well, let's just go into the Kidron Brook without any kind of knowledge of its history or any of that. This was not by happenstance. This was divinely ordained. Jesus chose a place of betrayal to be betrayed. On the other side of the Brook Kidron is the western slope of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is really, I guess in my opinion, more like a giant foothill. Uh, It's only at its highest peak. It's only 2,710 feet above sea level. It's not very big. How many of you know where Mount Diablo is? Right over here, right? Well, Mount Diablo is over 1,100 feet taller. And Mount Diablo, comparatively speaking to our Sierras or anything, is not much of a mountain. I'm trying to give you some visual perspective here. The Mount of Olives was really like a big foothill. It was about... Its range was about two miles long, so it wasn't a large thing. It was like a big high-range foothill. The Mount of Olives is also called Mount Olivet in Scripture. In fact, we we see it called Mount Olivet in Luke 19.29 and Luke 21.37 and over in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. So Olivet, Mount of Olives, same place, same mountain. The Mount of Olives is actually where Jesus began his triumphal entry 
Matthew 21, verse 1. That's the launch point as he went into the city, because the city was right there at the base. It's where he preached what is known as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. It's from where he ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And incredibly, it is the place where he will return at his second advent, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. It says there that his feet shall touch that mountain when he returns. So this is, this is a significant place of geography, a significant place. And near the, the bottom of the, the western slope of the Mount of Olives, there was a garden. John doesn't give us the name of this garden, but Matthew and Mark do. It was called Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 36, Mark 14, verse 32. Gethsemane in Hebrew means oil press. That's what it translates in Hebrew. Now, this suggests that it was an olive orchard or something like that, maybe even where they processed the olives and made oil. Now, I want you to notice the special detail that appears or that John included at the end of verse 1. What does John say? He says, he and his disciples entered. He and his disciples entered this garden. Now, this suggests that Gethsemane was privately owned and probably walled in, probably had a gate or an entrance. Now, it could have been a wealthy family in Jerusalem that owned it and loaned it out to Jesus for whenever he wanted to use it. This seems to be the case with the upper room back in the city Jerusalem. Jesus used it pretty regularly, and the disciples used it quite regularly after Jesus' ascension. The home with the upper room was large and spacious. The upper room alone could fit at least 120 people, right? Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. The homes with that kind of occupancy weren't cheap. The person who owned it obviously had money. And it may have been a gal named Mary, mother of John Mark, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Both Mary and her son Mark were faithful believers. John Mark actually went on to become Peter's, the Apostle Peter's scribe, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter dictated his account of Jesus' life and ministry while John Mark wrote everything down. We call that record the Gospel of Mark. It wouldn't surprise me if this gal who was wealthy owned that garden as well. In any case, we don't know for sure, but it seems to be a private place where they entered. So after crossing the brook Kidron, Jesus and his disciples entered the garden called Gethsemane, oil press. While in the garden, Jesus spent time praying to his father and exhorting his incredibly sleepy disciples to stay awake and stay alert. John doesn't include any of this, but if you look in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22, you see the other things that transpired while they were in the garden. Now we can move to verse 2. You got a little background. They're in the garden. Uh, the narrative continues and says, Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So earlier that evening, while they were still in the upper room, Jesus 
commanded Judas Iscariot, that's the reference here, Judas Iscariot, who was literally possessed by the devil at that moment, to go and do what he was planning to do, what? To betray the Son of Man, right? Chapter 13, verses 26 and 27. So Judas was with them earlier during the supper. He dismissed him. He's been out doing his stuff while these guys, while Jesus was teaching and doing his high priestly prayer. And here John tells us right here in this very text that Judas was extremely familiar with Gethsemane. And this was because Jesus had brought him and the other disciples to it pretty regularly. It was where Jesus stayed during his visits to Jerusalem, John chapter 8, verse 1. And it is where he stayed all the previous evenings of the Passion Week. Luke 21, verse 37, Mark eleven nineteen. 19. In other words, Jesus had brought his disciples, especially Judas, to this place repeatedly. So Judas knew where it was. He knew all about it. After leaving the upper room, we're going back a little bit earlier, but after leaving the upper room, Judas went to the Jewish authorities and told them where Jesus would likely be that evening later on. And he must have described how he, Jesus, and the other disciples camped at Gethsemane all week long. And at that point, the Jewish authorities began to assemble a task force so they could hopefully arrest Jesus that evening. All of this was playing out as Jesus was teaching his disciples in the high priestly prayer. There's stuff happening on the other side of town. Now on this particular evening, Jesus didn't go to Gethsemane because it was where he spent all the previous evenings of that week. He specifically went there because he knew that it is where Judas would not only look for him, but find him. This didn't happen by happenstance. This wasn't chance. Jesus knew that if he went there, that's where he would be found by his enemies. He's not unwitting, unknowing. Going to Gethsemane, therefore, was not a logistical mistake. By going there, Jesus had sovereignly arranged the time and place of his betrayal and arrest. Unbeknownst to the traitor, Judas was simply playing right into the Lord's predetermined plan. Now let's move to verse 3. So Judas, having procured cured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, talking about Gethsemane, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So as Jesus was telling his disciples to, to wake up and to, and to stay alert for the third time, right? Mark 14, 41, Judas enters the garden with a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. Now some English translations employ the phrase Roman cohort instead of band of soldiers. And I prefer Roman cohort over the ESV's render, rendering of it. I, I prefer it because it actually tells us who the soldiers were and how many there were. It was a Roman cohort, which means that they were Roman soldiers, or more specifically, legionnaires. 
And these, these legionnaires were bad dudes. They were, they, were the, they were the SEALs. They were the SWAT team. And a cohort consisted of 600 to 1,000 men. I'm, I'm thinking maybe this mountainside and this garden doesn't have the capacity. Now, there was an entire cohort stationed at Jerusalem during Passover to keep things peaceful. You know, the Jews would get really excited, and, and the, the very nationalistic Jews, the zealots would get very excited, and then they, they would lead out terrorist attacks against the Romans. So the Romans took no chances during Passover, and they would keep an entire cohort, 600 to 1,000 men, right there near the temple. So it's, it's unlikely that the Roman officials back in Jerusalem would send their entire cohort to arrest Jesus. Doing so would leave the city vulnerable to zealots and whoever. So I don't think this is an entire cohort that's entering into the garden. They probably sent what's called a maniple. A maniple consists of 200 legionnaires. 200 is more than enough. Not to mention there's temple police and guards there. Either way, there were enough Roman soldiers there to warrant the presence of a commanding officer. In fact, a captain, if you just slide down to verse 12. Along with these Roman soldiers, this cohort, there were officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were members of the temple police force. The chief priests and Pharisees used the temple police to arrest people who committed infractions against their religious traditions and laws. These officers had been sent to arrest Jesus in the past, chapter 7, verse 32, but they failed over and over again because it was not yet his time. In other words, this was not going to be Jesus' first encounter with the temple police. And both the Roman soldiers and the temple police were carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. John's pretty explicit there in identifying the three things they had in their hands. They were carrying lanterns and torches not because it was evening or dark. There was plenty of moonlight that evening. Remember, this occurred during Passover, and Passover occurs during a full moon. So the city was lit up by this full moon, the pathway to this place, the Kidron Brook, all of it was pretty well lit. They had lanterns and torches in case Jesus and his disciples tried to flee into the mountainside and hide in the shadows. That's why they had lights with them. And yet Jesus had no intention of escaping I mean, that would literally defeat the purpose for why he came. He was was there to be betrayed. He was there to be arrested. He wasn't going to hide in a crevice or behind a tree. The disciples ended up doing that later that evening, but Jesus wasn't there to do that. Now, John doesn't tell us what weapons they had, but Matthew and who was there as well, he was right there alongside of John, he does tell us what weapons they had. They were carrying swords and clubs. Matthew 26, 47. These were the most advanced hand weapons you had available then. Today they would have been carrying AR-15s, and actually not AR-15s, they would have been carrying M-16s. 
They would have been carrying something that had a full auto ability. Whatever the modern day weapon was then, the best that they had was swords and clubs. And let me tell you, these guys knew how to use them, especially the legionnaires. So they were carrying swords and clubs, according to Matthew. And this is interesting because the, the fact that they have the fact that they have weapons with with them, it it illustrates the chasm between who Jesus is and what he taught and the understanding of the religious leaders. I mean, Jesus came preaching the good news of the gospel. He didn't come to launch tomahawk missiles. That's when he comes the second time. He healed the sick. He delivered the demon-possessed. He, he fed the hungry. He raised the dead. He literally posed no physical threat. During his ministry, never once did he pose any physical threat to Rome, nor to the Sanhedrin. And yet, here they come with weapons in hand. When Jesus saw them coming, he was bewildered by the fact that they were actually carrying weapons. He, he, he couldn't get their, his mind around why they had weapons. He literally tells them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you have come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Mark 14, 48. That's the NLT, which I like. I mean, he sees them coming. He knows what he's been saying for the last three years. He knows what he's been preaching. He knows what he's been doing. He's never posed a physical threat. He's never said, you know, I'll kill you. He's never said anything like that. And when they come with weapons, he's thinking, that's interesting. I guess I'm a robber to them. I guess I'm a, a revolutionary. I'm, I'm the ancient Che Rivera, which some would like to think Jesus was, and not even close. Now we move to verses 4 through 5a. Oh, man, this, this is where it gets great. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. I love how John includes this detail of Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Now this statement just further emphasizes Jesus' omniscience, all knowledge, and complete mastery of the entire situation. In other words, he, he knew exactly how things were going to play out. He knew what was going to happen to him, and yet he's there and he presents himself. He doesn't run. He knew about the betrayal. He knew about the arrest. He knew about the trial. He knew about the crucifixion. He knew about his death. He knew about his burial. He knew about his resurrection. He knew about his ascension. He knew it all. John tells us in verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him. And yet, instead of fleeing into the mountainside like Phil Baker would have done, Jesus courageously came forward and asked this crowd of armed soldiers and police a question so he could identify and present himself to his enemies. They didn't walk up to Jesus. Jesus sees them coming. He walks over to them. That's quite different from what you see on live PD every week. 
Taser, taser. I've seen that a million times. You shoot a guy in the back with a taser. Starts flopping like a fish. Jesus just walks right up to them. Now this is a, the second set of truths represented here in this that just decimate this preposterous view that Jesus did not intend to get himself arrested and executed. That he was some kind of unwitting, unwilling victim who made some logistical mistakes. And at this exact moment, Judas approaches Jesus and kisses him on the cheek. That was his prearranged signal to the Jewish authorities. The one I will kiss is the man sees him. Matthew 26, 48. A kiss was a, a gesture of respect and affection in that culture. There were different kinds of kisses. Jews kissed the feet, the hand, the head, the hem of a garment, and the cheek. And the kiss on the cheek declared the deepest homage and love. It was reserved for close, intimate friends, those whom you cherished the most. And this is the signal Judas used. Can't get lower than that. You just can't. It's just despicable. In verse 5a, the crowd responded to the Lord's question, whom do you seek? It says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice how they tag on the end of that statement there, where he lived, which was a place of ill repute, a nothing place. It was a, a term of derision in that day to say Jesus of Nazareth. It was an insult. It would be like saying Philip of Cedar Rapids. But I think Cedar Rapids is okay. I don't know. Rhonda of Ceres. Now you're talking. Rhonda's like, I hate him. Well, like Philip of Modesto is a score. Maybe 30 years ago. But when they said that, it was a term of derision. We're looking for that, that person. We're looking for that guy. That's who we're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth. It was an insulting phrase. And now we move to 5b through 6. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, <laughs> they drew back and fell to the ground. <sighs> Jesus immediately identifies himself and his betrayer, Judas was standing there with the soldiers and police. It's very important that you notice John's note there of including Judas. In some of your translations, it's probably a parenthetical statement. It's important that you know that Judas was standing there on the side of the crowd. And when the Lord said, I am he, he was not only identifying himself as the man they were looking for, but as the divine son of God. The phrase, I am, is a divine designation Jesus claimed for himself during his ministry. 
What we're actually seeing here is another I am statement in the Gospel of John. Remember, there were seven of them. Well, now there's eight. And the word he, because he says, I am he, the word he does not appear in the original Greek. It was added at some point by English translators to assist us in in, in realizing whom Jesus was speaking about. But it's not actually there in the original Greek. They probably added it to assist their readers. So the text should be rendered, Jesus said to them, I am. I am. Just as he had said before seven times in in John's gospel. And what happens next is incredible. In verse 6 it says, After Jesus identified himself as I am, as God, the entire crowd, including Judas, fell prostrate to the ground. In other words, they were supernaturally made to bow before the Lord Jesus. But he was an unwitting victim. Oh, yeah, you'd like to think that. This demonstration of divine sovereign power was meant to let everyone there know who is in charge. All Jesus had to do was speak his name, the name of God, and his enemies were flattened. Right on their faces. Now he could have done more than this. He could have appealed to the Father to send 12 legions of angels to deal with this crowd. Matthew 26, 53. Or he could have spoken an additional word or phrase and destroyed them all himself. But this is not why he came. He came to lay down his life for his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 11. He came to lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15, verse 13. As an atoning sacrifice. 1 John 2, 2. I believe what we see here in verse 6 is a foreshadow of what will occur in the future when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth at the name of Jesus. Philippians 2.10. You're seeing a foreshadow of that, a precursor to it. Like the other examples in our text, the I am statement and subsequent supernatural submission of Jesus' enemies proves that our Lord was not an unwitting, unwilling victim who made logistical mistakes and got himself arrested and killed. Now in the remaining section, we see Jesus not only surrendering himself to the Roman and Jewish authorities, but we see him protecting his disciples. Now we go to verses 7 through 9. It says, so he asked them again. This is Jesus asking them. So Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And it says in verse 9, this was to fulfill 
the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So when the the power of God in this moment was lifted, the, the crowd, this massive crowd, began to rise to its feet and dust itself off. Right? It's not just that the power of God made them fall prostrate. It held them there for a moment. And once that power, once Christ lifted that power, then they began to get up and and do this kind of bit. And they were obviously dazed and confused by being mysteriously driven to the ground. I mean, think about it. You're standing there, you're armed, you're in SWAT gear, and the next thing you know, you're on your face, and you look back and everyone else is on their face. So you didn't get tripped. And you get up and you're dusting yourself off and you're bewildered and saying, maybe I need to go get my blood sugar checked. And maybe the 275 other people that are here need to do that. You're bewildered. You don't understand. And they're confused. And Jesus did not want the police to mistakenly arrest his disciples too. In an effort to avoid this, he strategically asked a second time, whom do you seek? He wanted the arresting party to restate their orders to arrest him only. That's why they had come, just to arrest him. That was what was written on the warrant. In their bewilderment, he didn't want them getting confused and arresting the 11. They needed to stay free. And so he makes them repeat their orders. Whom do you seek a second time? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth, which means they understood. And Jesus repeated with the same phrase, I am. Or in our translation, some of them, I am he. And then what does he do? He points to himself and he points to his disciples and he commands, it's me you want, let these men go. This is, he's not begging them to let those men go. He's not asking politely for them to be let go. He's commanding with divine force that these men be set free or not incarcerated. This command right here is brilliant. And at that particular moment, the word of the Lord was fulfilled. What word? The word Jesus spoke about not losing those given to him by the Father, chapter 6, verse 39, not losing any of his sheep, John chapter 10, verse 28, not losing any disciples which he prayed for, John chapter 17, verse 12. And by preventing their arrest, Jesus protected the faith of his disciples. If he had not prevented their arrest, the disciples would have been traumatized to the point of of losing their faith. They would have. They would have not only been arrested, but they probably would have been beaten and pulverized and questioned, waterboarded. Who knows what they did back then to get people to talk? It would have been devastating to them. Does this mean that faith can fail, that salvation can be lost? Yes, it does if we're left to ourselves. Yes, what I'm telling you is that you can, as an individual on your own, you can lose it. And so can I, if we're left to ourselves. In fact, with the way that I am most days, I I think I would have lost it 15 minutes after I gained it. 
No disciple, no matter how educated, no matter how pious, no matter how religious, can keep their faith and salvation intact on their own. None can do that. The reason why we do not lose our faith, the reason why we do not lose our salvation is not because of us. It is because of Jesus, our great high priest. That's why. You want to know today, Christian, why and how you're going to make it to the finish line? It's not going to be because of you. It's going to be because of Christ. It's going to be because of Jesus. As our high priest, he does all that is necessary to protect our faith and bring it to maturity. Jesus protects the faith, not just those disciples, but of all his people. We are all, if we're in Christ, our faith, our salvation, it's, it's protected. All of ours is protected by him. And this is why we will never lose our faith. This is why we will never lose our salvation. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who gives it, the one who preserves it, the one who protects it, and the one who brings it to culmination. It's not you. It's not me. It's him. Now let's move to verses 10 and 11. Oh, man, I just looked at the verse and I remembered what this is. This is, this is like, this is dumb. This is, this is me. This is, this is you. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, you already know we're in trouble when you read that, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Not his left ear, his right ear. Parenthetical says the servant's name was Malchus. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So, so the disciples, all of the disciples, the 11 standing there at this moment, they were all emboldened at this moment by Jesus' display of divine power, right? They, they're over here. They're a tiny group. They've got Jesus. There's a massive group on the other side. This massive group, as soon as Jesus says, I am, they all fall on their faces. So the 11 behind Jesus go, that's right, fool. Come on. They get emboldened. They think they're tough now. They literally, together, yelled out, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? <laughs> Luke twenty two forty nine. All of them together are like, and they pull out their swords, and they're ready to go to war with about 275 people. And without waiting for his reply, with, without waiting for Jesus' reply, Peter drew his sword from its sheath. I've got this. Took a swing at the guy immediately across from him. And it was this high priest's slave or servant, Malchus. And, and let me tell you, Peter wasn't aiming for his ear. He was trying to hit him smack dab in the middle of the head and kill him. Cut his head right in half. And his aim, like mine, a little bit to the right. Ching! Ear goes flying. 
Jared knows. He's been shooting with me. He, he's, he aims, and these swords were about that long. He aims for the middle of his head and maybe grazes him, takes off the right ear. Incredible. Peter's reckless act threatened to start a battle right at this very moment that could wind up getting the disciples either killed or arrested. The very thing Jesus was working to prevent. (laughs) How often am I creating risk and doing things that are not the Lord's will? The opposite. And yet, by His grace, sometimes He comes along and cleans it up and fixes it for me, but sometimes He doesn't. We'll talk about that in a little while. But Peter does the exact, he does, he creates risk and trouble here by this act. And, and the Lord Jesus moves very quickly to diffuse the situation. First, he rebuked Peter, put your sword away. Are you trying to prevent me from drinking the, the cup the Father has given me? And if you look in the other accounts, he talks about those who live by the sword will die by the sword and these sorts of things. And he was by no means telling all Christians to never own a sword or a gun and never use self-defense. Some take that and just run crazy with it. That's not what he was saying. In, in, in Jesus' mind here, Peter is attempting to stop the Lord Jesus from moving forward with the Father's plan. You remember when Peter did this earlier during the ministry and said, you know, that'll never be, Jesus. We're not going to let you get captured. We're not going to let you get arrested and beaten up. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't know the will of the Father. That's exactly what he says to him here in another way. Peter thinks he's doing good, but he's actually fighting against the will and plan of the Father right here in this very moment. He's trying to snatch the cup that Jesus must drink by preventing Jesus from being betrayed and arrested. And the cup here in the text refers to the cup of divine judgment, which Jesus would drain completely on the cross for all who believe. It's absolutely necessary that Jesus go to Calvary's hill, gets nailed to a cross, and drinks the cup of God's wrath and judgment. If he does not accomplish that, then that means the wrath and justice of God and the judgment of God are still on sinners like you and I. We can't be forgiven. We can't be saved. And Peter, intending to do what is right, does the antithesis of what is right. And he's trying to prevent the Lord from following through with the plan. I love Peter, but I hate him in this moment. Jesus is working to diffuse this. First, he rebukes Peter. Second, he heals Malchus's ear. doesn't say that in John's account. Luke 22, 51. He reaches over. He doesn't even, he doesn't even like pick his ear up and, and reattach it to his head. He reaches over and touches the right side of his head and fashions a new ear. Creates in that moment a new ear, and he's fully healed. No more bleeding, no more pain. And his quick response worked because the crowd did not attempt to arrest the disciples. They left them alone. But Peter's brave but impetuous act revealed his continued failure to understand the necessity of Jesus' arrest Jesus' death, 
Jesus' burial, resurrection, and ascension, right? He proves that he still does not understand precisely why Jesus has come. Peter's thinking, how are you going to take out Rome and establish your throne right now with us to flanking you on your left and right? How are you going to do this if you get arrested? I have to stop this. He's still thinking with the wrong Jewish mindset. He doesn't understand at this moment precisely why Jesus came. And that's why he intervenes, and that's why he creates just utter havoc. Now we move to verse 12. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The first thing that comes to mind here is that this group of of well over 200 just witnessed two incredible miracles. First, they were cast to the ground against their own strength and power. If that happened to one person, you would chalk that up as he got dizzy and fell down. Maybe he had too much coffee. But the entire group went down. The religious leaders that were there, the Roman soldiers, Judas, everyone hits the pavement, hits the dirt and bows. That is an incredible miracle. Everyone there saw this, especially the 11, because they wanted to kill everyone after that, with the exception of Jesus. And not only did they witness, this crowd witnessed that miracle that happened to themselves, they were (laughs) recipients of it, but they all sat there and gazed forward and watched Jesus fashion an ear on Malchus. That too is a, a great miracle. But together, these two great miracles had zero, zero effect on the crowd. How do I know? because they went forward and arrested Jesus and put him in chains. And this just demonstrates the truth of what John wrote in chapter 12, verse 37, doesn't it? It just demonstrates, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, endless signs and wonders before them, so, so many at the end of John's gospel says that, the, and, he, and he's using hyperbole, but the idea of that he did so many miracles and so many signs and wonders that there wouldn't be enough books in the world to document them all. This is what he says at the end of his gospel. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Right here we see in verse 12, this truth that John wrote earlier just ring true. They see the miracles, they don't believe. Closing. We have seen with our own eyes today that the Bible does not present Jesus as an unwitting, unwilling victim who made logistical mistakes that led to his arrest and death. It presents Jesus as the omniscient Son of God who sovereignly arranged the time and place of His betrayal and arrest, who revealed His divine identity and name, I Am, 
who supernaturally forced a crowd of soldiers, police, and religious leaders to fall prostrate and pay him homage as Lord of all, who prevented his disciples' arrest and protected their faith, thus fulfilling his own personal prophetic promise to lose none, and who humbly allowed himself to be taken into custody by his enemies without hesitation and without any resistance. That is what John chapter 18 verses 1 through 12 present. That is the Christ that is presented here, quite the opposite of the imagination of pseudo-scholars. But I would like to leave you with a, a kind of practical application this morning that I've drawn from Peter's poor example in verses 10 and 11. I'm not sure why the Lord led me to, to go in this direction. I, there, there, is, there are many things that, that we can draw and apply from this text. I, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit has been already working in you and with you to apply what needs to be applied. But here's one thought that I have here drawn from Peter's poor example. We don't want to think of Peter because of what he did as an unbeliever. Peter was a believer. He believed in Christ. He didn't understand all that Christ is or the full purpose of why he came. He understood some of it. He understood the forgiveness and that, but he didn't there were, you know, he just it wasn't all together for him yet. But he was a man of faith. He believed in Christ. And in fact, you could put a positive spin on his self-defense move. He was trying to protect his Lord. He was doing it with ignorance, but it was still very, very bold, very courageous. He didn't want Jesus to be arrested or harmed. Based on ignorance, but also love for Christ, right? He's a man of faith. He had faith, but he did not yet walk by faith. That's the difference. He was still walking by sight. He was responding and, and, and living his life and walking according to what he could see and process and comprehend and understand what was tangible and unfortunately what is temporal. So, so when you think of Peter at this point, of course he changed after Pentecost, but you think of a man who had faith, but who did not yet know how to walk by faith, who still walked by sight. And because he did this, this led him to take matters into his own hands and make decisions that, that created unnecessary risk, unnecessary trouble for himself and for those around him, Right? See, what I'm telling you is that, that we're called, we're commanded to walk by faith, not by sight. But when we, like Peter, walk by sight rather than faith, we take matters into our own hands. We make decisions based on our own knowledge or inclinations or desires. And nine times out of ten, nine and a half times, nine and three quarter times out of ten, it's the wrong decision. And we create liability and risk and trouble, don't we? 
You know that you're walking by sight when you're in the habit of taking matters into your own hands. And then creating and generating havoc. My life since October 18, 1969 when I was born. My life from that moment forward has been that. And we see in the text the, the grace and the mercy of Christ because he rescued Peter from his faithless act, didn't he? But that doesn't mean that he's going to rescue us when we behave the same way. Now, I, I, I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet this morning. I'll put the whole, I'll, I'll put it all, I'll bet it all. I'm at the table, I'm putting it all out there. I put it all on this. I believe each of us here today is very likely dealing with fallout we created because we, instead of walking by faith, we walked by sight and we took matters into our own hands and made some poor decisions. There's got to be somebody in this room who's dealing with the fallout of that kind of activity. The one preaching is one. And we, and me, we need to learn from our mistakes. We, we know, see, that's what repentance is. Confession is just is, is simply acknowledging and confessing your sin to God, but repentance is different. We're called to live repentant lives. Repentance is actually turning and walking away from those behaviors. And in this case, it would be walking by sight, living by flesh, making dumb decisions that create risk and trouble for yourself and for everyone around you. A great example of this would be debt. You see, we know as, as believers, we, we, know, we know God is sovereign. We know He protects our faith. We, we know He works all things, all things for our good, right? For the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We understand these things. But this does not negate our responsibility to study His Word to seek his face through prayer, to, to know his will, to, to wait on him for as long as it takes, and, and to make decisions that are based on faith, not sight for the glory of his name and for our own good. I think so often we, we know God is sovereign almost, but, but it's really a theory because we never test it and prove it through the way we live. And the way we test it and prove it is by walking by faith, not walking by sight, not intervening in every situation and trying to fix things all the time or taking matters into our own hands. 2 Corinthians 5.7 clearly states that believers are to walk by faith and not by sight. And so I just want to ask you a question this morning. Are you about to pull the trigger on something that you're not absolutely certain about? 
Are you? Put your gun away and pray. Don't pull that trigger. Seek the Lord. Search His Word. Talk with His people. There is wisdom in the counsel of godly men and the counsel of godly people. Seek first before you make decisions. And I'm kind of talking about big things. Now, I'm not talking about, well, I don't know if I should go to McDonald's or Jack in the Box after church today. I need to, I need to consult Phil. If you come to me with that, you're going to get a shoe in your rear end. And then maybe a 20-piece for me. But I'm picking one way to apply this, and that's in decision-making for big things, marriage, buying a house, car, whatever. I don't know. You take it how the Lord leads you to take it. And I say in every situation, you just, you just keep waiting on the Lord if the answer isn't clear. And you keep seeking Him, and you keep looking at the Word, and you keep praying, and you keep seeking counsel, right? You keep waiting on Him and waiting on Him. It's okay. This culture wants us just to, it just presses us and, and forces us and moves us. Everything has to be so expedited and fast. It doesn't work that way with the Lord. And if, if you have exhausted it all, man, and you've just sought the Lord through prayer and you've searched His Word and you've talked to His people and, and you're still not certain and then, you, and then you decide to keep waiting on Him and waiting on Him and you're still not certain, I'd just say abandon the idea altogether because it's pretty clear the Lord doesn't want you to do it. I, I, I'm so passionate about this subject because I have jacked myself up so many times and I have dealt with jacked up people. I have literally counseled wives who have said, I married the wrong man. Well, how can you say that? You're married to him. Well, he's an unbeliever. Well, there we go. Did you consult anyone that loves Christ before you did that? Well, no. I just did what I wanted. Apply it to anything. I have to apply it to my own life in my own unique way. I know me. And I just, I would say to myself, I'm like holding a mirror up, and I would say to you, just let us be the people of God who walk by faith, not by sight, who make decisions that, that have been well thought through and prayed over that we know without a doubt will glorify Christ, not cause Him to have to respond and clean up our mess. Don't follow Peter's poor example. Life is, is already fraught with trouble, isn't it? Why would we want to add more? You know, this, this week was a, a very trying week for me and I was I was getting angry and mad and and I was thinking of specific people and like oh man you know and and all that and then and then I just had this kind of like come to Jesus moment and I realized I went all the way back to the beginning of the week and this was happening this morning too this is great to be dealing with before you're going to preach and and I'm thinking to myself none of what's going on right now and all the stress that I have is anyone else's fault but mine I created all of it because I tend to walk by sight rather than by faith. I am my own worst enemy. 
You are your own worst enemy. Life is already fraught with much trouble. Why add more to it? Plus, I would just add, it's never, ever wise to put the Lord to the test, ever. Instead of putting him to the test and jumping into scenarios and situations that are unholy, unhealthy, not based on faith, that are going to jack us up and jack others up, instead of doing that, walk by faith, by seeking the Lord and waiting on him. This is the least risky thing we can do when we're uncertain. Did you know that? It's never risky to seek the Lord and wait on Him. That's the safest place to be.